Gravity, a weighty subject with Joe Swiggum, Nanograv Collaboration. Welcome back to the Cosmic Companion. I'm James Mater. Now this week we're going to take on a weighty subject, gravity. Later in the show we're going to talk with Joe Swiggum from the Nanograv Collaboration. Okay, so gravity is one of those things that we all know about, but when you really stop to think about it, I mean, it's really kind of mind-boggling, isn't it? I mean, there's this invisible force that keeps us us all stuck to the ground and makes things fall when we drop them. I mean, how wild is that, right? Wild, man. Wild. But our understanding of gravity has changed a lot over time. The ancient Greeks had some ideas about it, Aristotle thought that earth and water fell toward the earth, while fire and air rose as each of these ancient elements traveled toward their natural positions. Now, Isaac Newton came along in the 17th century, giving us a better handle on what gravity's all about. And Newton theorize that gravity is a force causing any two bodies to be attracted toward each other. The strength with which they do this depends on their masses as well as the distance between the bodies. Incidentally, although Newton may have seen an apple drop onto the ground while thinking about gravity, The story about Newton being bopped on the head is probably not true. I mean, that type of thing just doesn't happen in the real world. The story of the falling apple first appeared in, in print in a biography written by William Stuckley, who is a friend of Newton. Although Stuckley had recounted that Newton had told him about this event during the conversation, his biography of Newton wasn't published until 1752, more than 50 years after the alleged incident. Now, later it turned out that Newton's ideas weren't the whole story. In 1916, Albert Einstein proposed a new theory of gravity called general relativity. According to his ideas, gravity might be thought of as a curvature in space-time resulting from the presence of mass. General relativity predicts that light should be affected by gravity, even though light doesn't have any rest mass. And sure enough, observations have confirmed that light does indeed bend when it passes near a massive object like a star or galaxy. Gravitational waves, ripples in the fabric of space-time, have been seen emanating from the movement of massive objects in space. This advance first theorized by Einstein, provides researchers with a new branch of science, gravitational astronomy. However, smaller, constant ripples of gravitational waves passing through space-time are also predicted by the theories of physics. Such tiny gravitational background ripples were recently detected for the first time by researchers at the Nanograv Collaboration. Next up, we're going to talk with Joe Swiggum from the Nanograv Collaboration. 
talking about this exciting observation. Looking deep into the universe, we see backwards in time. And the oldest light in the universe holds secrets to how everything around us will, one day, end. Meanwhile, stars, planets, and galaxies dance in an intricate ballet, occasionally giving birth to life. We are fledgling species, just beginning to visit other worlds. We are a way for the universe to understand itself. The Cosmic Companion strives to bring the universe down to Earth, and we depend on your help to make it happen. For information on subscriptions and ways to donate to this program, please visit thecosmiccompanion.net. Thank you. This week on the Cosmic Companion, we are happy to be joined by Joseph Swiggum. He is a postdoctoral fellow and a full member of the Nanograph Collaboration, and he's here to talk to us about the subject of the week, gravity. Welcome, welcome to the show, Joseph. Thanks, James. Yeah. So, uh, can you give us just a brief intro uh, into what are gravity waves and what makes them so interesting? Yeah, so gravity waves are what result from massive objects um, accelerating. Uh, and for example, the objects that my collaboration studies are uh, massive black holes orbiting each other. And as these black holes orbit each other, they cause ripples in space-time that are called gravity waves, mm -hmm. um, gravitational waves. And these gravitational waves can come in many different uh, shapes and sizes. And as they pass through, you and I, they stretch and squeeze us in directions uh, perpendicular to their direction of motion. Okay, so how do we use that to, how are some, what are some of the ways we can use to detect that? How do we see them? Well, in 2015, uh, for the first time, we actually detected uh, gravitational waves. The LIGO collaboration did this um, with an L-shaped detector, a couple L-shaped detectors. Um, and what they found was um, two black holes that were in the final stages of merging. And uh, they saw this, you could actually see it with your naked eye in the data. Um, it was a chirp, um, a rapid increase in the frequency of the signal in the data. Um, and so they saw this stretching and squeezing, um, it, which was basically the changing in the lengths of their in the lengths of the detector mm -hmm. as the gravitational waves passed by. Um, what we're doing with uh, another experiment called uh, Nanograv, which uses pulsar timing arrays, um, is we're looking for this the same sort of stretching and squeezing, um, but we're using uh, a galaxy size detector. Mm -hmm. um, so instead of using you know detectors that are built on Earth, we're actually using stars called pulsars scattered all over the galaxy. Um, to look for these small changes um, of distance due to passing gravitational waves. And where are some of the advantages to using 
quasars and our pulsars and what are you um how are you, i mean you basically got this galaxy size detector how, how are you getting it all all to work with some detail on that well so one of, one of the advantages um you know compared to ligo is that we have access to a completely different part of the gravitational wave spectrum so just like the you know the light we see is in a small portion of the electromagnetic spectrum the optical light we see um, which has much higher frequencies up to you know x-rays and gamma rays low frequencies down into the radio part of the spectrum the gravitational wave spectrum also is is you know um, varied and LIGO detected a signal in relatively high frequency gravitational waves. What we are sensitive to with um, pulsar timing arrays is low frequency gravitational waves. So these are waves that are, um, they have, you know, wavelengths of say a year. Um, and so you have to collect data in this case over decades in order to build up the signal that you're looking for in the data. So it's it's quite different in that respect, but but we have access to very different phenomena. Hmm. So how are you able to put together, must have been years or even decades of data that you must have had to have assembled? Yeah, so, finding, yeah. so I'm a pulsar guy. So I'm all about the pulsar aspect of the experiment. Um, but one one thing that we have to do to make our gravitational our galaxy size gravitational wave detector so sensitive is we have to incorporate data from many 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 pulsars. Um, I've mentioned pulsars a couple times. These are actually dead stars, um, so they've already gone supernova, uh, and they're spinning very rapidly. the The types of pulsars we use are called millisecond pulsars. So they spin about as fast as a kitchen blender, and they're about the size of a city, um, which is just incredible to think about. But they're like they're like lighthouses, and so they send out a, a beam of radio emission in our direction every few milliseconds, and so we can use them as clocks. Um, discovering more and more of these pulsars and um, adding them to our pulsar timing array allows us to build a more and more sensitive detector um, for gravitational waves. Hmm. And are you able to put together those findings with maybe things seen by LIGO or the upcoming or the upcoming LISA mission uh, into a more compre into a multi messenger type? look at gravitational waves or are the missions too different? Yeah, so, I mean, certainly our, um, so certainly the, the gravitational waves that we study in concert with these other uh, experiments really flushes out how we understand gravity um, in general. And, and, you know, the theory, Einstein's theory of, um, gravity and general relativity. Um, I would say in terms of the multi-messenger aspect, the really exciting thing about pulsar timing arrays is that 
although we are currently seeing evidence for this gravitational wave signature, and what, what, we're, what we think we're actually seeing is the rumble of gravitational waves caused by supermassive black holes all over the universe. Um, but eventually, as we continue to collect data, we should start to see single sources pop up. Um, we should start to see uh, specific regions where the signals are coming in stronger than others. And once we do that, we can point optical telescopes or um, telescopes, radio telescopes or um, you know whatever in, in the electromagnetic spectrum to go and look at uh, these sources so that we can gain information not only from the electromagnetic part of uh, the spectrum, but also um, gravitational waves. So where do you, um, so can gravitation, in what aspects do you think that um, gravitational waves might be thought of as an analog of, let's say, ripples on a pond that people may be familiar with? And in what ways are they radically different. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, that's a good way to sort of think about waves traveling out from some source is ripples on a pond. Gravitational waves, though, are, are they are rippling the very space time that we exist in. So they are going out in all directions and going through us at all times. And so, yeah, it's it's a little bit mind bending to think that your your body and my body and the Earth and everything we know of is sloshing around in this you know gravitational wave soup. <laughs> <laughs> and you specifically talked about interacting black holes creating these ripples, but is does all movement create some sort of ripples, however small? To, or what are some of the other sources, or is it everything? Yeah, so, so what you really need to create gravitational waves is a mass that is accelerating. And so if you have two objects orbiting one another, they're accelerating. That can be a source of gravitational wave, gra gravitational radiation. Um, there are other uh, sources theorized uh, that could um, that could create, you know, perhaps the signal that we're starting to see in our data, um, such as cosmic strings uh, or some relic of the Big Bang. Um, but these are less favored. Um, these are less favored uh, compared to, say, supermassive black hole binary systems, um, which we think are the most likely cause for what we're currently seeing. And so what can this study and the study of gravitational waves and ripples in space-time teach us about the cosmos, the beginning of everything, the big questions of cosmology? Well, I think one of the other things that that is really unique about the nanograv, um, and, well, pulsar timing array science in general, is that the experiment is incredibly multifaceted. 
Um, what we are doing is we're using dead stars as clocks um, for our detector. And we're observing those with radio telescopes. So we not only get access to all of this inf cosmological information about um, how supermassive black holes have formed and are forming over you know, the lifetime of our universe, but we also get to study the incredible aspects of all of these, you know, quote unquote, local uh, pulsars in our own galaxy, which are doing incredible things in their own right. Um, and we can measure their, uh, we can measure their, um, their ticks to accuracies rivaling atomic clocks. That is absolutely incredible. And finally, what is next uh, for you and for Nanograv? Well, we have a lot of work to prepare our next uh, data release. We're, we now have several more years of data that we're uh, opening up and, and starting to analyze. Um, but a, a big part of of preparing the the fifteen year release um, and releases by other pulsar timing array groups all over the world was creating this global partnership, and I think a, a big challenge um, in the coming years will be to grow this partnership and build the global community. Um, but if we are successful in doing this and combining data from telescopes you know, 10 to 20 telescopes around the globe will have a much, much more sensitive data set in the coming years. So, you know, not only is what Nanograv is working on very exciting and, you know, we have much more data in our own right to, to analyze and, and unpack, um, to start to see like what I was saying, maybe single sources will start to pop out maybe the the signature of this the background of gravitational waves will grow stronger in our data set um but i'm really excited personally to see the the global community growing closer um so that we can enhance future data sets even more through partnership well, best of luck to you in that. I really look forward to hearing about your future discoveries and work. Thanks. Yeah. And that was uh, Joseph Swiggum, a postdoctoral fellow and full member of the NanoGrav Collaboration. Now, we've come a long way in our understanding of gravity, but there are still plenty of questions that researchers are trying to answer. For example, one big mystery is why gravity is so much weaker than the other fundamental forces of nature. I mean, think about it. You can pick up a paperclip with a tiny magnet, even though the entire Earth is pulling on that paperclip with its gravity. What? that you say? You don't believe me? You don't approve that with an experiment? Fine. Follow me to my laboratory.
Welcome to my laboratory! Now, we're going to show you how powerful the electromagnetic force actually is! Just let me put on my safety goggles, yeah? Aha! Okay, this is better. Now, we take my handy dandy tiny little magnet here. Hello, tiny magnet. Say hello, tiny magnet. Hello, tiny magnet. And now these paper clips. Now the earth is pulling down on these paper clips with a force of almost six million billion billion kilograms of, of force. Now, but do these paper clips care? Oh no, oh no. These paper clips don't care. These paper clips don't give a kick. Now we bring the magnet Whoa. down. Whoa. Ah! Huh. The paper clips pull up against the force of gravity Whoa. and ours and spent space time and ah! Another big question has to do with how gravity fits in with quantum mechanics, which is our best theory so far for describing the behavior of particles on very, 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 very small scales. Uh, right now, we don't know of a good way to combine general relativity uh, and quantum mechanics into a single theory. This is sometimes called the problem of quantum gravity. This is one of the greatest questions in cosmology today. So, there you have it. Gravity is one of those things that seems simple at first glance, but turns out to be full of surprises. What would life be like without gravity? show next week as we continue work on our first feature-length film, Gaia Rising. This future history explores the 21st century facing devastation from global climate change, telling the story of three desperate individuals who come together to heal our wounded planet. This first trailer for Gaia Rising will be released right here on the 2nd of September. So make sure you join us then.
clear skies.